Cartier, Rolex, Gucci, Prada, Jordan, Adidas, Bottega Veneta. At eBay, it's real or it's getting the fake out. eBay's team of luxury authenticators make sure you never get faked over. Watches inspected by watch aficionados. Sneakers checked by legit sneakerheads. Handbags examined by handbag connoisseurs and jewelry in the scopes of experts and gemologists. The details inspected. The fakes rejected. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with eBay's authenticity guarantee. Everyone deserves real. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome to Who, What, Where with Hillary Kerr, your direct line to the designers, stylists, beauty experts, editors, and tastemakers who are shaping the ever-evolving world of fashion. I'm your host, Hillary Kerr, and today I'm chatting with celebrity stylist Thomas Christos Kikas, who is responsible for the incredible looks worn by women like Amelie Zilber, Akira Akbar, and the one and only Gabrielle Union Wade. Thomas is here to talk about finding his way into and to the top of the styling industry, plus the incredible body of work he's done with Gabrielle and his tips and tricks for honing your own style, including the importance of tailoring and a good pair of loafers. It's all coming up on Who, What, Where. You ready to dive in? Let's do it. So, Thomas, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here on a number of levels. First and foremost, like, I'm just a big fan of your work. I mean, it's just endlessly inspiring. Also seems like a great deal of work. You are constantly posting new images of all of the work you do. And to be that prolific is a feat in and of itself. So... I'm hoping that we can go through some of your backstory, and maybe you could tell me a little bit about how you found your way into the industry. Is this what you always wanted to do? How did you become you, basically? First of all, thank you. And, you know, it's nice to hear that you're inspired by my work and the Instagram of it all, but really, I'm inspired by them, so it makes it so fun. Also, the pressure's on because they (laughs) inspire me so much, so I really want (laughs) to make them happy and make sure that I'm making them look exactly how they want to feel. So I'm glad that it's translating. How did it all happen? It wasn't really by design. You know, I went to college for political science and... (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Actually, I went to school pre-med and then I graduated poli-sci in writing. So I was taking a very different direction, but fashion has always been like a part of my life. And my parents are both quite stylish and we were immersed in it without them knowing they were doing that. Oh, I caught a glimpse of some of your Instagram stories. It was like, look at mom, look at sis. 
No, yeah, my mom turns it out and I love like trolling her about it. I'm like, mom, you have more Manolos than I ever have in my office, but she has fun with it and she really has always inspired me. So after college, I had to figure it out because my degree and my, you know, all that did not lend itself to becoming a stylist or getting a job at a magazine. So I really had to network and, you know, I was going out a lot and meeting all these people that were editors or styling. And I started to realize, oh, that's what I want to do. And so I fell into it, but it wasn't without a lot of hard work and using a lot of the corporate stuff that I'd learned because I did do a lot of like corporate work and applying it to styling, which really helped. I mean, knowing how to deal with clients and being hyper-organized call times, it's a very creative, often loosey job, but at the same time, you have to show up. There's a lot of money on the line and a lot of jobs and people that are depending on you. So I was assisting and doing a lot of editorial stuff in New York because mm-hmm. I went to school in New York. I stayed there and I was doing a lot of American Vogue, International Vogue, assisting for V, another magazine. And then I had a dinner with my best friend, Emma Werner, who worked at Selma McCartney. Yep. And she invited a friend at the last minute. And you kind of hate when that happens. You're like, really? You're bringing someone <laughs> I don't know? Like, I can be a little reserved. And it was Jill Lincoln, uh. who was heading up Rachel Zoe's studio at the time. And I was like, hey, if you ever need anything, just let me know. I don't know a lot, but I know enough. And she was like, sure, I'll keep you in mind. And, you know, oftentimes nothing comes of it. The next day, she's like, we have a huge shoot. I need help. And I was like, (laughs) like I said, I don't know much, but I'm happy to help. And it was with Jennifer Gardner. And I realized in that moment after the shoot, the immediacy of it and the impact that it had versus styling models, I just loved it. And styling real people, I mean, still a celebrity, but a realer person mm-hmm. felt so gratifying. And I loved how amazing she felt and the instant feedback we had in those fittings. I kind of knew the celebrity route was more for me. Can we go back to those corporate editorial days for a moment? Because I love that you say like there is something to having that background that helps with the structure and the protocol and the set etiquette and sort of a little bit of like boot camp for being in this world. What were some of the best things that you learned working on those editorial shoots? And then how do you think that an editorial shoot differs from working with a celebrity for our audience who might not know? So with an editorial shoot, I mean, it's very fast in the sense that you get the look and you send it right back and you have to really hit a lot of marks, advertisers, a story to tell. It's quite specific. With a press tour for a celebrity, we have to factor in the client, the story that we want to tell with this movie that they're promoting. We hang on to stuff for a really long time. So the designers know that. And it really is kind of a race to get the best thing first. And so it becomes competitive in a different way. And then you're factoring in contracts with any fashion houses that they have, getting them a contract. So brand building, it's a totally different job in many ways. That's really interesting. And I appreciate that too. The other part of it that I can only imagine would be another factor. It's like real person who has input versus model who like it's not their role to have the same sort of creative contribution, right? 
Absolutely. I mean, listen, you want to make sure that the model's comfortable. Yeah. But it kind of ends there. And they know that. That's part of their job with an actress. She is promoting herself and the garment, of course. And the project. And the project. It's a lot. (laughs) But what I kind of stress to the client, the more that we start to work with brands, it's really important that we do a good job representing these brands. It's not just about them. And the Mm. best clients realize that. They're not so self-focused, like, well, I don't really care. Let's hem it anyway. Absolutely not. I will not ruin the integrity of this gown that was made for you or that we got off the runway just because you feel like you don't really wear long things or whatever. It's like, well, then this dress just isn't for you or let's wear it and I promise you it'll pay off. And 10 out of 10, it always does. Okay. So you work on that shoot. You have the Jennifer Garner experience. You see this world in a new light. What happened next? How did you move into solo projects? What was that progression like? So I started doing more of that and I was getting exposed to so many different clients. I was working a lot with different celebrity stylists. And then the wall group started seeing my name a lot, my agency. Mm -hmm. And they were like, okay, he's working with a lot of really amazing stylists. He's doing a great job. The feedback is great. I went on a road trip when I was 30 around the Southwest. And it was a very high low trip. We started (laughs) off at the Amman, ended up in an RV. So like, it was a very (laughs) introspective trip. And I was like, when I get back to New York, I don't want to assist anymore. I think I'm good. I have a lot under my belt. I was starting to do things solo. And I'm not a huge fan of the word manifester because it sounds a little passive. Like, oh, I'm going to manifest a big house. Okay, well, you have to work on it too. You can't just like burn sage (laughs) and like you're going to end up in the Hollywood Hills. If only. (laughs) If only, right? So, but I was doing the work. And I was kind of growing out of the assisting phase. Mm -hmm. And soon thereafter, the wall group was matching me up with some really great clients. And then Gab Union, she needed someone in New York. And the Rachel Zoe, Jill and Jordan of it all, we were all kind of going off on our own. And Gab was like, yeah, I don't care. That Thomas guy was pretty good. Is he around? And so we started working together and she really trusted me and gave me creative freedom, which is any creative's dream. So she really let me run with it. And we had so much fun and she saw the results. It's not just because she's a nice person, it's because she saw that she was getting a lot of press and- She's a smart person. (laughs) I mean, wildly smart. I mean, she just gets- the industry mm-hmm. and she likes to have fun. So when we're having fun fittings and getting a lot of press and feeling really great about herself first and foremost, she's like this is kind of working. So I was really lucky. So what was your meet cute like or one of the first looks that you put her in or one of the first projects you worked on together? Take me back. I'd worked with her a few times with Jill mm-hmm. for a lot of fittings. And the first solo thing I did with her, she had a New York step and repeat, some red carpet, and I pulled a bunch of stuff, but it was my pull and it just looked different. It was brands that I'd never seen on the rack for her and things I hoped she would wear. And 
yes, she's super beautiful and, you know, the body's crazy, all those things. All of the things. That said, I never really saw her in things that were a little bit outside of maybe her comfort zone. I was setting up and she was on the phone and I had this yellow rosy Asulin dress that felt a touch too odd or sweet or fat. It just didn't feel like something that she'd ever worn. And that would be maybe the goal down the line. And she pointed to it and she was like, let's start there. I like that one. And I was like, oh, she gets it. She just never had it before. And she put it on and she was like, oh, we're good. We don't need to try anything else on. Like <laughs> no tailoring, good to go. And I knew at that point, I was like, if she's game, I'm down. Yeah, that was our first solo thing together. From there, made a few goals for myself and for her. And a few years later, she got on the Vanity Fair International Best Dress List. And that was a personal goal for me because it was something I read since I was a kid, that list every year. And I was like, we got this. I'm going to get you on that list. She wasn't really the one like that was all in my head. Right. But I like to set little benchmarks like that here and there. So. So how do you think about putting looks together? So in the beginning, obviously, you're like, I'm going to choose things that I haven't necessarily seen her in that push things a little bit further and then have sort of that spectrum. Now you've built trust and you have an understanding, but you also, I feel like, have like very disparate projects that go on. Like, for example, this past year, she had two very different press tours. One was for the animated Disney movie Strange World, and the other was for A24's The Inspection. Those are very different. How do you think about like the bigger strategy of what she's doing and then also still keep a through line and keep it connected to who not only she is now, but how she's evolving? And do you think about the project itself and promoting that and being stylistically in sync with that? Or are you thinking about the next project down the road? I'm curious about sort of the fashion Jenga and strategy of it all. Typically, I'm just quite collection driven. I don't overthink it. I want the client to be comfortable and look hot. That's all I care about. <laughs> So for most things, I look at the collections and I see maybe what hasn't been shown and I start there. For this, it was different. She's promoting two very different films at the same exact time. I mean, it was like Monday, Tuesday, Strange World, Friday, The Inspection. It can't all bleed together. And also you're speaking to two very different audiences, a kid's movie and then a really heavy, almost personal project yeah. where she plays a mom who is rejecting her gay son, a role that was beyond anything she's ever done. And it felt kind of personal to me as well because I've been working with her for so long. I was super proud of her and I wanted to make her proud in the way that she looked at all of these events. And it was not really about the fashion at all times. It wasn't really about me at all. So for Strange World, we got to have a lot of fun because it is a kid's movie. She was promoting it with Jake Gyllenhaal. It was a really fun press tour. We wore a lot of like Lueve because Jonathan does yeah. such like outlandish, but still beautiful and often feminine or just really, really flattering things that have a sense of vibrancy and 3D and texture. And then we wore this Ellie Saab dress, I think from 2009 or 2012, that they were so kind and pulled out of the archives. And I had hoarded it for a very long time because I knew I was going to find a home for it. And after our second fitting, it fit beautifully, but it felt a little pageant-like. And that's mm. my greatest fear. I'm not that stylist. <laughs> 
I'm not like a mermaid dress fit and flare. Like that is not me. <laughs> but she looked so beautiful in it that sometimes it wins, even if it is just really pretty, right? So we were in London and her hairstylist, Isaac, asked me if I had any ideas. And I had some references with really over the top or just extraordinary hairstyles that were manipulating braids and something that was really coming away from the body. And he was like, I got this. And I walked into Glam that evening and he'd already gotten started and I was blown away. I mean, he took my barely a seat of an idea and made it something so beautiful and made the dress go from pageant to like strange world. Truly encapsulated the moment and the press tour. And it did really well on social. And she felt really freaking cool and looked really cool. So, Well, I remember loving the whole thing together because it had elements of like, there was something Seussian to it, like in its playfulness, but then also incredibly regal, but like regal from another planet, another time, like from the future, yeah. like to be that simple and that ornate at the same time. I mean, I actually gasped. And ultimately, right, we're being hired to dress people, but also these studios are investing in their glam teams to not only make the clients and the talent look good, but to find a way to get more press for the movie. Let's yeah. not kid ourselves. Yeah. So I'm never in the business of like peacocking. However, <sighs> if I can really create a moment that is going to shed more light on the project, mm -hmm. it's a win-win. And they love that. Then I had to switch gears and really oscillate to a different type of film. So that press tour was in November. I had the luxury of time, which I don't get that opportunity often. In July, I started working on it and I emailed Prada and I was like, is there a way we could do some things for the inspection? Mm. And I love the lace that Mrs. Prada has done throughout the years, which her goal was to make lace a bit non-sensual and a bit more of just like a textile that she uses almost like any other fabric. And I love that. And so we created a dress out of that lace. And then we created another dress inspired by, a, I think it was a 2008 collection. And this yellow from that collection and of these like triangles. And they were just so generous. They made her three dresses. So she pretty much wore product throughout the inspection because it's a brand that is really near and dear to her heart. And so it's that project. So it was an easy pick. Talk to me a little bit more about the custom route. Like, what is it that makes you say, okay, I think we want to do something custom for this moment. And how long does that take? You mentioned you had a little bit more time so that you could do multiple looks, something really special. I know the timeline varies. So I'm hoping you can walk me through that process a little bit. Custom is actually not my favorite. Why? <laughs> I find that the designer's best work was shown. Ah. If they wanted to make it, they would have already made it. I'm not a designer. I'm a stylist. And I often feel like I'm stepping on someone's toes when I'm like, make this. And so when I do get custom made, it's a privilege. And I tread lightly to not really have too many opinions and have them in any way make it not Valentino or not Prada or not whoever enough. I never want to take away from the house and have it not feel like the designer and like their DNA. Mm -hmm. So I like custom. It's an honor and I love that I have that access. It is really cool and exciting. 
However, if you're willing to give me your best dress from a couture show, I'll take it. <laughs> and I have been lucky enough. One year, Valentino gave me this like wildly cool green dress that was massive that Gab wore to the British Fashion Awards. And it was beyond anything I could have come up with the design team. Just that Pier Paolo magic. <laughs> it's that Pier Paolo magic. And I feel like if I had told him, I want this and I want that, listen, I don't know, right? But it was already there. And they were kind enough to give it to me because they were like, oh yeah, not many people can pull that off. Gab can do this. And she really did. I don't think a custom dress would have had the same amount of impact. So I'm a bit of a nerd for process, and I'm wondering if you can take me through some of your standard operating process. Like when you are gearing up for a tour, I know obviously there's so many variables here, whether it's an award show or a press tour or whatever it may be, but like in a perfect world, how early do you start thinking about something? Is there such a thing as too early? And then do you feel like you've gotten to the process so that how it starts is how it actually shows up? Or is it more collaborative and it begins with a jumping off point and then becomes something new by the end of it? Or does it depend on the client and the project? It's different every time. And I think somebody who's a little bit type A like myself, I really have learned my expectation is always for the client to be happy and for them to look good, but it may not be how I imagined it. Hmm. And that's okay. And I have to like accept that. But Strange World and the inspection actually was executed exactly how I wanted. And I'm super proud of myself for that because I put a lot of pressure on myself. No one else cares, right? But <laughs> I do. And that actually looked exactly how I wanted. The Met Gala last year, Versace was so incredible. And that was one of those custom moments where I was like, Gab and I really love this. We were inspired by this. And they were like, great, we're going to make pretty much this, but better. And that often doesn't happen because they're like, oh, we love that you love this. We'll make that. But Versace was like, oh, no, we got this. And we're going to like snatch a bitch. Like they know <laughs> how to make a woman feel like 120% better than they could have ever imagined. So it's hit or miss, but I've learned, you know, not to overly control those elements. But what I do control is tailoring. Mm -hmm. I will not have a fitting without a tailor and to have all systems in place because things will go unexpectedly in a different direction. And if I have all the other things ready to come in and counterbalance that, then it's all going to go fine. Okay. So speaking of that custom look, do you have a handful of your favorite all-time moments? I think some of my favorite moments are the ones where my group chat, so I'm on a group chat with like three of my best girlfriends and it goes on all day long. We're brutally honest. So <laughs> When my girlfriends are actually like, whoa, where is that from? Mm. That's a sense of validation because I know it's permeated a different part of the culture. It's not just going viral and it's doing well on like, you know, a Vogue.com or an Evan Ross Katz or on a Who, What, Where. Like, I love that. And it means a lot for me as a creative. However, when my girlfriends want to buy it, like Amelie Zilber wore this brown Perwenza knit dress to, I think it was the American Music Awards. And we wore it with like a Tiffany cuff. I mean, that dress was in stores right after for like $2,000. So it's not something that's the Versace dress that's custom, right? 
So to me, when all my girlfriends were like, I need that brown pearl wines address, is it real? I'm like, no, no, yeah, it's on net. Like you can buy it. I love that. I love the actual impact on real people that I talk to about, you know, their kids. I love that. I was like, you're elevated normies. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So you brought up Amelie and we have to talk about her because she is an ambassador for Dior and works with Tiffany. So I'm curious about how you figure out that path. And then how has your strategy with her evolved throughout the time that you've worked together? You know, with Amelie, it was set up through my agent. And at the time, I think she was 19, going to Georgetown. She's wildly intelligent. She's passionate about politics, about the world, about human rights, just about what's going on around her. Mm -hmm. But she also loves fashion. And I think because she does have so many other interests, she allows me to really take the fashion part of it into my own hands. And she really trusts me. And then she did set out a few goals and she really loved Dior. And she was like, I really want to work with them. And with Tiffany, same thing. And so part of my job has become more than just getting a really great dress that makes you look very pretty. You know, it's not just that. How do I build a relationship with these brands that she really cares about? So next thing you know it, we are at the Couture Show with Dior and we're going to events for Tiffany and we're really building these relationships and hanging out with all of these amazing creatives. And she really has become immersed in this world that she loves. And it's so nice to be able to help build someone's career in that space. And that's really become a part of our jobs in yeah. the last like seven-ish years. I mean, it's always been there, but now the pressure is really on. Okay, so she always looks so fabulous and so interesting. I'm curious about if you have any favorite moments that you have created together. I love doing Fashion Week with her because whether we're at Dior or going through all the archives, I mean, she's just so funny. She's like, come on, bestie, let's do this. And I'm like, okay. So it's, <laughs> yes, a lot of responsibility because it is a work thing. But it's nice to get to take her along this fashion ride. So specific looks, I mean, I love the Proenza we did. Mm. She wore this bar jacket to the last show. And yes. you know, I love TikTok. I love the future. I've never been one to be like, oh, Instagram. Oh, everything's changing. Yeah, everything's <laughs> always changed. I mean, I don't want to still work on like a Dell computer. I mean, the future <laughs> is ours. So... <laughs> We have to evolve with it. So for me to put her in a bar jacket and have her wear that to the show, but then expose all of her TikTok followers on it, millions of people getting to know that part of history, what a great way to bridge something classic, but it's actually quite modern and like super sexy. I mean, she looked so snatched and gorgeous and a whole new generation is seeing it. I love being that bridge, so... Love it. Okay. So you mentioned earlier that fittings require a tailor. I'm wondering, just from like a practical standpoint for our audience, how do you think about a garment fitting properly? What are some of those key things that the folks who are listening to this podcast at home might benefit from? So 
the tailoring thing of it all, I will say, is almost embarrassing for me. I'm not the tallest person, and neither is like my whole family were a bit shorter. So from when I was like in elementary school, I was getting things tailored. It's so embarrassing, but like I was getting like my no doubt t-shirts tailored, but like the tailor would come to the house. And my mom would be like, last call, whoever wants to get things. And we would all like run into the room. My sister would have her like Delia's and her (laughs) wet seal stuff tailored. So aside from my mom being nice enough to like let me tailor all this stuff, it actually empowered me because I was small. I was smaller than everyone else. Obviously, I felt really insecure about it. And I wanted to wear the things that other kids were wearing, but I couldn't. I would walk into these stores and everything was massive on me. And it taught me like what looks good on my body, how to make it look good. By the time I started doing what I do now, I had developed a shorthand with tailors because I was doing it on myself for 20 something years. I knew (laughs) how to do it. And so if you really love something and you want to make it work or make it your own, an inch and a half makes all the difference. When I do things for the carpet, photographers shoot really high and a midi length dress or a skirt, normally we want it to be midi length. But if you do it the real life way and a photographer shoots it from so high up, it's going to dwarf you or not be as elongating. So I like to make things an inch and a half shorter. So the illusion is that actually looks the right way. When you're tailoring stuff for yourself, it's about you know knowing your body, knowing what looks good and not falling into the trends mm. like jean trends or blazer trends. I'm never going to wear a jacket that's below my waist, really. I don't like long jackets on me. I don't find them flattering, but they're really cool and everyone's wearing them. So it's not so much about fit always. It's about knowing what works and not deviating regardless of the trend. And I also feel like right now, there's less of this like maniacal focus on is it on trend or is it a thing in a weird way? Like because style has become so much more democratic, like folks like the fact that people have a uniform or a silhouette or whatever it is, and they're not just sort of thirstily chasing whatever the hot thing is. I mean, right now there are literally like giant oversized pedal pants and super, super skinnies and they're coexisting like there's something for everyone. Yes. Love it. Okay. So obviously everyone's personal style is different, but what are a few pieces that you think are foundational to a good wardrobe? You know, timeless pieces, wardrobe builders that you can wear over and over again and style in different ways that you think everyone should have in their closet? I love a good underpinning or whatever you want to call it t-shirt, a good layering t-shirt. And I find that half length, not three quarters, so it's right above the elbow, is so flattering. I love it because you can wear it with something super formal on the bottom or jeans. You can wear it with like a statement or like a stronger jewelry moment or not, but it's flattering on the arm. It's a bit unexpected in terms of like a tank or a short sleeve. I love that. It just works time and time again. I think jeans that work for your body, if you've been wearing skinny jeans and you love the way that your like butt looks in them, why dumpify like (laughs) your butt? If you love the way you look in like a tighter jean, I get it. TikTok is like, oh, that's like for millennials or whatever it is. But if it looks good, it looks good. And 
if a wide pant is gonna drown you then stick with what looks really good on you i love like a really great belt it's kind of a great finisher on like jeans if you're trying to dress it up anderson's makes the best belts and they're on net or easy to find i wear personally a lot of like la mer i wear their pants all the time the la mer like twisted kind of barrel pant i wear a lot of margaret howell and then my shoes change that's the one thing that's ever changing is like I'll go through like an Adidas era for like a year and now it's all Solomon's and you know, I kind of change it around there. I love that. What about for your clients? Obviously, the majority of the stuff you do is for public consumption, but I'm sure that there are some moments where they're like, hey, what's the perfect gray t-shirt? Are there any of those women's wear essentials that you have seen work on different bodies and different personal styles where you're like, oh yeah, the commando bodysuit is just like good on everyone or whatever that may be? I think in terms of to like replenish a wardrobe, Frankie Shop is amazing. And in terms of outerwear, that's the one thing I don't like to save on. Like a really great coat. I think cheap like wool often looks matted or like it looks felty in a way. And the lining doesn't always match up where over time it starts to like unmatch. So really great outerwear coats from Estella or Prada has been making that gray charcoal-y topper for so long and it's for a reason. Yeah. But yeah, like La Mer makes the best coats. Those are things where I'm going to be like, we need new coats, thicker or thinner, depending on where they live, the row, that kind of stuff. And then certain things are deemed trendy when everyone else is wearing them. But then when people aren't wearing them, then they go back into their eras. Like a loafer is really trendy, but if everyone's yeah. not wearing it, it's preppy. So... <laughs> But it's still great, you know? M. Parsons makes the best loafer. So I like to go in and just do a lot of like the real life stuff that they can wear to work. And a lot of it is just getting a lot of layering pieces, finding the jean cycle that works for them, a blazer cycle. And I'm not a huge color person, but also it makes it so much easier. So then when you find color or pattern that means something to you, it's not just yet another thing that you're probably going to get rid of quite soon. So any pattern I have in my closet, it's because I love it. Like it's mostly Dries and it's quite sentimental. Also Dries makes the best prints, period. Always, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I know we are not devoted to following trends, either of us. However, I'm always curious about the trends that people are interested in. So are there any trends or movements on the horizon, whether it's menswear or womenswear or both, that you are excited about? Or also like what you're ready to have come back? Like everything is a cycle. So I loved the maximalism that Proenza did. I think it's so fascinating. And if you want a great dress that you can wear for like weddings and bachelorette part, like all that occasion stuff, Proenza makes the best dresses and they're not overly specific either. So it's not so seasonal or like one huge trendy moment, but they do their own trends in a way that are a lot quieter, but they're like super bell-bottom sleeves and bell-bottom trousers. And you can incorporate that in your own way, like tops with L sleeves, like Kate's doing them, Proenz is doing them. And then you can do it with a trouser or something that is in your comfort level or vice versa. I like experimenting with shapes here and there. 
because they do it in darker colors. It's not going to be in like a crazy print. So there's a way to incorporate trend with silhouette or with color, but often not both because then it becomes like, okay, I'm really only wearing this twice. And you want to not overly invest in something that's so specific, even with like handbags and stuff, you know, get like the Bottega or whatever, but maybe turn it down and get it in like dark maroon versus like the brightest of bright because then you can really get use out of it and it's just chicer and more elevated and yeah i try and tell myself when i'm shopping future classics like what are the pieces that i'm going to buy today that will be considered classics in five years and ten years and whatever it is like those are the pieces that you will not have buyer's remorse over Absolutely. I do have some, but like rarely, actually, I'm realizing that I think it's an identity thing, too. You just get more comfortable with age and with how you feel. And facts. oftentimes, like essentials are made for a reason. I went to Greece last summer for two weeks and I did it in a carry on. Yep. And I packed seven T-shirts, two trousers two swim trunks that were neutral because then during the day I'd wear them as shorts and then two statement shorts that I would wear at night. So then I would like let them know that I still work in fashion. I mean, I'm not just going to like be a wallflower. And a Bodie t-shirt that I wore to the beach, but also at night. And a Laurel Piana, the loafery shoe that I wore as like a beach shoe, but also when I was dressing things up. And brand new Adidas that I wore on the plane and I could wear it throughout. And like a little raffia, like Prada beach bag. Oh, and a Celine belt for like my t-shirt and khakis to kind of finish it off. But all these things were in this like base rolling, you know, luggage thing. And I loved it. I love that. Also, it's like you made your own capsule wardrobe. And it's nice sometimes. It's like you made all of the choice before. Then when you're actually there, you're not butsing over your outfit because there are only so many choices and you're going to figure something out. And half the time you end up making something great that you hadn't even planned on, even with those limited choices. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so last thing, and then I'll let you get about your very busy day. What is your best style advice? I think my best advice as a stylist, and I think maybe it's like a bit of a tough one, but a lot of times when we're really stressed out or if I'm in a showroom doing award season, people say it's not like we're saving lives. And I hate that phrase because very few people save lives in their job. And to have that kind of like passive, like, oh, it's not like we're saving lives. Well, of course we're not, but I love what I do. And I'm so fortunate to have the direct access to all of these designers and to have all of these amazing things come into my office, unpack like couture and all this stuff. And I have a responsibility and it's to make women feel super confident in situations where that picture is going to go all around the world with comments right below it, good or bad. And behind that one dress, so many jobs are affected. Publicist at the PR firm, and then the designers, the people that work there, their bosses in Italy or in Paris. And I don't take that lightly. And I actually, at the end of the day, I'm impacting my life. And that's also quite important because my mental health and my mental joy is also really important. So I'm so lucky to have found myself and to have gotten to where I'm at and to reduce it to anything else. Absolutely not. I love it. 
And that is the perfect closing note. Thomas, thank you so much for your time. This was such a pleasure and an honor. I enjoyed myself so much. And now my face hurts from smiling for an hour. <laughs> oh, this really means a lot to me. So thank you. A huge thank you to our guest today, celebrity stylist, Thomas Christos Kikas. Make sure to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, I'd also be so grateful if you would rate and review us. If you have any guest suggestions or any other feedback, drop us a line at podcast at whowhatwhere.com or you can find us on social at whowhatwhere. See you next Wednesday on Who What Where with Hillary Kerr. This episode was produced by Hillary Kerr and Olivia Capaletti. Editing is by Natalie Thurman. Our audio engineers are at Treehouse Recording in Los Angeles, California. And our music is by Jonathan Leahy. Thank you to eBay for sponsoring today's episode. eBay's authenticity guarantee is all about keeping it real. eBay's authenticators are leaders in their fields with meticulous eyes making sure your pieces, whether it's sneakers or watches or collectibles, arrive as authentic as your style and worthy of your collection. As experts, they know the true difference between a real and a fake. Real carries that rare, distinguished feel, the weight of pure platinum, exquisite scent of togo leather, the tight stitching on a pair of dunks, the brilliance of real diamonds. So rest assured, your Rolex moves just like a Rolex should, and that colorway on your Jordan Royals will always be on point. The details inspected, the fakes rejected. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with the eBay Authenticity Guarantee. Everyone deserves real. Visit ebay.com for terms.